1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. On the agenda this week, going to be having a chat about the Battle of Tours. Now, you may not have heard of this battle. Uh, it is said to be one of the most crucial and decisive uh, events in world history, not just European history, but in world history, even though it happened in in France, what we today call France. It's sometimes known as the Battle of Poitiers, or the Battle of the Palace of the Martyrs. And the reason it doesn't come up uh, all that often, even though it's, again, hugely significant, is that it happened just bloody ages ago in 732, not 1732, 732 CE, so over a 1,000 years ago here. And the story goes that if this battle had ended differently, if things had sort of gone a different way as to how they did during the battle, then the world as we know it would be unrecognisable, absolutely unrecognisable based on the outcome of of this one single battle uh, in in what today we call France. So the story is all about an army of invading Muslims uh, who have already captured by this stage, already captured Iberia, what we today call Spain and Portugal and have their eyes on the rest of Europe. And obviously, to get to the rest of Europe, they have to come through France. And uh, the the Battle of Tours and the story leading up to it is, uh, is is all about what happened there, and you know, obviously, ultimately how this uh, how this Muslim invasion was was ultimately dealt with. Now, I'll give you a word of warning: it's a bloody long one. This one it is a very very long story. A lot of uh, setup required, a lot of context to be given, and as a result, we're going to do, do the old splitsky with this episode. It's going to be a two parter. So you check in next week when you've uh, when when we uh, obviously comes to the thrilling climax. Probably could have thought of a, a better way to describe the second episode of a history podcast, to be honest, but still, you know, I'll take what I can get. Anyway, we are going to kick things off by talking about the background to this battle and exactly why it came to pass and and, and getting to, you know, why it was so important as well. So let's get to it here, starting off in 720. So again, over a over 1,000 years here, nearly 1,300 years ago here. And in 720, the Umayyad Caliphate is absolutely bloody huge, this thing. It is at at its biggest ever point, over 11 million square kilometres. It goes all the way from modern-day Portugal to modern-day India, although only just by the tiniest of margins does it get to modern-day India. It'd actually be fairer to say that it goes from Portugal to Pakistan. That's a little bit more accurate. Anyway, these Umayyads, they've been conquering the pants off northern Africa and both the Near and Middle East for centuries and centuries. Um, And at the time, it was actually the biggest empire in the world that the world had ever seen, not only the biggest that, you know, that was at the time, but also the biggest that had ever existed at the time. Um, And right now, the Umayyad Caliphate is seventh on the all-time list. Number one, of course, is the British Empire – which peaked at uh, thirty-five million square kilometers, controlling almost a quarter of the entire world. I was actually interested to read about this. I was—I was, I found it quite interesting to learn that um, this took place really late in the piece. The British Empire's peak, if you believe it, came in nineteen twenty, much later than you think, even after World War One had finished. Um, also, another thing I found out that the—you the, know—the saying "the sun never sets on the British Empire" is actually, even though the British Empire isn't really a thing anymore, it's still kind of valid because of this tiny, tiny group of islands, the Pitcairn Islands that that are in the middle of the Pacific and still part of Britain. So technically speaking, the sun is always shining somewhere on a British controlled territory. Anyway, we're getting over a thousand years ahead of ourselves here. so, So let's head back to the 8th century and talk about the Umayyads. As I say, the Umayyads, they peaked in 720, and this was due to the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula that kicked off in 711. The Iberian Peninsula today just basically Spain and Portugal, although of course tiny little uh, Andorra are up in the mix, as a, as well as a very small little slice arena of France there, and I guess Gibraltar as well. Yes, technically, geez, we just can't we just can't get away from the bloody British Empire today. Anyway, in 711. There were these blokes called the Visigoths, and they're living there in, in Iberia, and they've been around for about 300 years. Uh, the Umayyads are on the other side of the Mediterranean, and they have a squeeze over the Strait of Gibraltar, and they say to themselves, that looks bloody tasty. They all them, you know, olives and, and wine and, and, you know, tapas and all that sort of stuff. Let's bloody have at it. Let's just jump on our boats and head over the other side here. But fantastic. And they snag it, no worries. In 712, they lick the Visigoth king, <laughs> whose name is Roderick, sounds like a you know a mid-level accountant, but he was the king of the Visigoths at the time, and he stuffs it all up beyond belief by getting himself killed during the battle, the Battle of Guadalete, which uh, left all the Visigoths uh, behind, uh, running around like headless chooks. So the Umayyads they keep punching on, and after nine years, they've established control of basically the entire southern half of the peninsula, and then up past uh, where Barcelona is today, and in 720, they set up a little capital, clean up the, uh, the remaining uh, Visigoth cities, And they settle down, again, for some tapas, whack the telly on, cheering on Rafa, go on, mate, get up there, win that Grand Slam, again, over a thousand years ahead of ourselves here with that one. Anyway, now, the Umayyads, they don't rest on their laurels after this. Before long, they're back in business, and they've set their their eyes further into Europe on the rest of uh, what today we call France. They controlled the southwest corner of France already, but uh, I don't know. The thing is, you know, by the time they've, they've gotten into this little bit of, of, of France, maybe they've already got a taste for moldy cheese and snails and bits of horse, so maybe they want the whole kit and caboodle here. Whatever the reason is, they they start to raid further north and further east into Aquitaine, pillaging and generally having a great time just, you know, wrecking all of this, uh, all of the French business that's going on there. They do lose a battle. They do uh, sort of have their uh, derriers handed to them uh, just a little bit in 721 during the Battle of Toulouse. Now, this is where a bloke named Odo the Great, who is uh, the Duke of a semi-independent Aquitaine, breaks the siege of Toulouse and gives the Umayyads something to think about in a, in a major way. He pulls a classic move, because he, initially he's buggered off from Toulouse to find help, which means that the Umayyads are overconfident, they think their enemies have fled off, they, you know they're not going to uh, stand and fight there, and they're sure that the siege is going to be successful. But Odo, he's going around and asking other blokes for help, including the ruler of the largest Frankish nation, Francia, a bloke named Charles, who you may have heard of, his name is uh, Charles Martel. later on he, he, he gets this name, Charles the Hammer. Anyway, Charles is actually a bit of a bastard to him at this stage. And he says, no, nah, mate, look, you want an independent Aquitaine and you have got one. I'll tell you this, this sounds like an Odo problem, not a Charlie problem, my friend. Tell your story, walk Nonetheless, Odo, he does ultimately get some blokes together, even though uh, Charles it doesn't help him. And when he rocks up again back in uh, Toulouse with his army uh, that he's cobbled together, he absolutely annihilates the Umayyads. Uh, they're lazing about, waiting for the city to surrender again, just, you know, scoffing down some frog's legs, enjoying the, enjoying the local cuisine. And uh, yes, the the just waiting for the city to re- to surrender, which it doesn't happen because the Umayyads' overconfidence had meant that they, they weren't scouting, they weren't defending the siege from the outside, and uh, most of the soldiers are standing around, sticking sitting with their bloody s- thumbs firmly stuck up their own arse. So that is the way that uh, that one goes. There, the Umayyads are driven off from Toulouse after a truly disastrous defeat, and uh, their conquer- conquest further into Europe at this stage is is very well and truly slowed down. Despite this, however, the Umids, they don't give up, they don't give up. They keep on raiding and pillaging and doing all this other nonsense. And by 725, they're in control of half of the modern-day French terranium, all the way past Montpellier. And it's at this stage that they start pushing north again, back into Aquitaine and towards Francia, and in Bordeaux, guess who they run into? Once again. Odo the Great 10 years later in 732. This time he's not so great and this time he gets his French derriere handed to him on a silver platter at the Battle of the River Garonne. Now the Umayyad army is being led by a bloke named Abdul Rahman al Ghafiki, and well look I, hope, I was hoping it wasn't going to come to this but I'm sure I'll get picked up on it so his, his full name is actually <clears throat> Abdu Syed Abdul Rahman ibn Abdullah ibn Bishir ibn Al Sarim Al Aki Al Gafiki, which, to be honest, sounds like a bloody Harry Potter magic spell. uh, But anyway, that's the way that it goes. By the way, definitely got that on the first take. Didn't have to edit out several several previous unsuccessful takes. Definitely nailed it first time. Anyway. Let's just call him Abdul. I think that's going to be a little bit easier here. This fella, he's a major hotshot with the Umayyads. He's an all-around top bloke. I'll tell you this much. He has worked as an administrator, as a commander, and he's generally done just a bloody great job at both of these things. Abdul, he was at the Battle of Toulouse when uh, when Odo gave the Umayyads what for. So i tell you this. He is pleased as punch to return the favour and give it right back to Odo in Bordeaux. So after Abdul delivers this ferocious ass-kicking, most of Odo's troops are are actually wiped out, and the Umayyads, they plunder the hell out of Bordeaux, and I'll tell you what, they have a great time.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: And as a result, it's at this point that old mate Charles, uh, who again, remember, had spurned Odo 10 years beforehand, he starts to get back involved in this story in a major way because... After Odo uh, got well and truly ruined in Bordeaux, uh, Odo goes to Charles a second time and asks for a hand uh, against these bloody Umayyad bastards who just aren't going to give up. Now, it's worth pointing out here at this stage that Francia and Aquitaine, they'd been scrapping over the last few years as Charles had been working his ass off to unify Gaul, or France in other words, and he'd done a blindingly good job so far. He'd done a very, very good job, but Odo, again, had been a bit of a thorn in his side as one of the leaders of Aquitaine. Anyway... Odo comes to Charles, he says, Listen here, mate, these Umayyads, they are up to no good. They're marching up north quicksmart and they are absolutely blasting the crap out of us in Aquitaine. And Charles, again, he has a think about it. He says, Listen, mate, I told you this 10 years ago. This does sound like an Odo problem and not a Charlie problem. And then Odo turns to him and says, Mate, are your ears painted on? This bloody bastard Abdul, he will be after Frankie if he's finished with Aquitaine. And I'll tell you what, he'll have your guts for garters, mate. He does not mess about. Now, Charles, obviously, he's swayed by this highly persuasive argument. He has a good old think about things and he says, All right then, old son, what's the plan? Let's see if I can give you a hand here. Odo says, the plan, my friend, is for you to pull your head out of your own arse here, stop being a bloody idiot, and give us a hand with these ilmiads before they overcome each and every bloody last one of us up here. Now is not the time to play bloody games, Charles, old mate. Now, obviously, there's no such thing as a free lunch. is there, so Charles says, okay, big fella, calm down, mate. Don't even worry about it. We'll help you out, but only if Aquitaine becomes a, a part of Francia and submits to the rule of, of oh, this guy right here, and presumably points at himself with both thumbs. Again, there's not a strict historical resource that indicates that that's the case, but, you know, we can we can surmise it, I think. Anyway, Odo, he realises the jig is up and that he's buggered either way, because he's either going to lose his independence to Francia or to the Umayyads, and so he picks the, the lesser of, the, uh, what he deems to be the lesser of two evils, and he signs on with Charles, who, uh, starts to get everything ready uh, to fight the umayyads. Uh, quick smart, this bike doesn't muck around. Again, one of the great names of history and for very good reason because he's off quick smart like a greyhound at the gates ready to get uh, ready to get busy against the umayyads. So we get to this huge face-off coming between the umayyads and the Franks led by Abdul on one side and Charles respectively on the other side like that, Abdul and Charles respectively. And here it's important to talk about Charlie a little bit more uh, and the wars that he's fought Uh, before 7.32, because I said, he's a bit of a bloody monster, this bloke. He did not stuff around one bit... Earlier on, he'd been in prison in Cologne to stop him from ascending to power, but he escaped from that in 7.15 and got a ragtag army together and fought for his right to party. Now, while fighting, he actually came up against uh, this bloke in 7.16 named King Radbod, and it was the only defeat that Charles suffered in his entire career, which is not surprising. As let's remind ourselves, he was fighting against a bloke named Radbod, who presumably was absolutely bloody shredded. Probably the swollest bloke you're ever likely to meet. Just chicks hanging off him, mate. Down he goes in his massive car, deadlifting thousands of kilos. Don't even worry about it, bro. So tough getting all the chicks that's there. Oh, my God. So cut. Anyway, after this, Charlie is like, he's like T-Pain. Because, uh, you know, after this defeat at the hands of Radbod, and again, full credit to Radbod for absolutely, you know, absolutely sticking it to Charles there. Um, Charles does the, the big tea paint trick because all he does is win, 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 no matter what. Two years later, he's the prince of the Franks and the de facto leader of Francia. So this guy, as I mean, you know, this, this isn't this isn't luck. This isn't a surprise here. This bloke, an incredible genius, an incredible genius, a, a, a military, you know, a, a, a tactical genius, incredible cunning on the battlefield, um, without ever having read the book itself. Charles was doing stuff straight out of Sun Tzu's The Art of War, stuff that was unheard of in Europe, such, you know, things like feigning retreat, attra- attacking far larger armies while they marched, or attacking at midday when so- uh, soldiers traditionally got to, you know, chill out and rest. He was pulling all of these tactics out of absolutely nowhere, you know, these these brand, I mean, we look at that now and go, well, yeah, of course, mate, that's pretty obvious, but at the time, revolutionary military technology in Europe at least he even actually ended up getting revenge on radbod after uh, consolidating his posi- position in Francia. radbod was too busy you know getting fully diesel at the gym bro just you know getting absolutely yoked my god he was beef swelling the man but he still got absolutely ruined by charlie eventually so he did he did get his own back anyway As a military strategist, as a commander, he's remembered for a lot of different stuff. He established the tradition of strong, courageous, and seasoned heavy infantry whose iron discipline would prevent them from breaking under duress on the battlefield, especially when attacked by cavalry. This was key. He believed in training troops. He believed in building experienced corps of soldiers that would be able to then help other ones that are just, you know, sort of ragtag, the old peasants with the pitchforks, what have you. Um... I have, as well as this, Christian heavy infantry fighting Muslim cavalry became a hallmark of warfare throughout the Middle Ages, and and Charles was very very important in getting that going. Muslim cavalry before Charles kind of you know took this step forward in 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 learning how to beat the cavalry. Muslim cavalry was was dominant, enormously enormously supremely dominant on the battlefield uh, throughout this period, and so. Uh, Middle Ages warfare was enormously influenced by the fact that Charles developed a a, a training or, you know, a a way of building soldiers, essentially, that could stand up to Muslim cavalry, despite the fact that they were infantry. Anyway, he's probably more famous, even than all of this, he's probably more famous for the establishment of a proper Paid professional army. This is what I talked about before about building experience of these soldiers, um, and, and ultimately this army grew to be the biggest in the world under the leader of uh, under the leadership, I should say, of a certain grandson of his, a bloke named Charlemagne, who you may just have heard of because he was obviously an enormously important figure later on in Frankish history. Anyway, this all began with Charles here, Charles Martel, as he became known after this battle, and uh, a very very important and unsung hero of Middle Ages history because of, again, his his huge influence over the way that uh, that things developed. Anyway, he really does become one of the most significantly generally unknown figures in history as he establishes this legacy that influences the, the, the history of the Middle Ages like no other. To give you an example, as I said, Charles ends up being the grandfather of Charlemagne and the reason that Charlemagne ends up being such a world beater is because of the setup that he was given by his grandpapa. So again, Charles, Charles Martel, not mucking around, very important name to know. Anyway, the overall point is this. Charles was a hugely formidable opponent, enormously important uh, throughout history, but also at the time a a very, very intimidating and very difficult foe to overcome. But unfortunately for Abdul and his Umayyads, they didn't do their homework about him as this battle approached. They didn't realize truly who they were up against. And there were a number of things that they did that, that didn't help this at all. They didn't send out scouts to get a, a sense of the size of his army. They didn't They didn't do any research about the bloke himself and, and get a read on his, his general deal, as we've just gone through just now. Overall, I guess they just kind of chill out and enjoy the march towards Tours and its rich monasteries, dreaming happily of the loot and the plunder and all that sort of stuff in these northern Frankish towns, expecting to walk over any resisting uh, Frankish force, again, without having done their homework. Now as the battle of tour again is sometimes described as the most one of the most important events in world history I bet old mate abdul feels a bit bloody foolish for not having done his homework beforehand because again the the course of the battle which we'll explore next week ultimately guided the course of world history But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the first half of the story of the Battle of Tours. The, the stage is set. The armies are approaching, and next week we will get across exactly what happened, what took place to shape world history so uh, heavily and so conclusively in this battle in the eighth century. Going to wrap the show up as usual with all the, the with all the nonsense again. If you've if you've come this far and you don't like all the housekeeping announcements, well, feel free to sign off, and I'll see you later. I'll see you next week. But uh, if you stick around for all this nonsense, thank you very much. You are certainly my very favourite type of listener. Uh, You can jump on net to uh, find all the stuff you need to know about the show, previous episodes, what have you. Uh, We do have a link there to a uh, Patreon uh, if you want to chuck us a couple of bucks. Thank you very, very much indeed to those of you who are supporting the show financially can't can't begin to say how much it means to me. Um, I do have a Twitter account as well at Half Ass History without an O, very annoying because that actually wouldn't fit, uh, where I tweet out all, you know, the nonsense that I'm learning about while I'm doing my reading about what, you know, whatever topic has taken my fancy. And of course, if you want to get in touch with maybe an idea about the show, a bit of feedback, whatever else, half ass history at gmail.com. Uh, best to do it now before I get too popular to reply to all my emails. Anyway. That is just about that. Going to finish the show, of course, with a, a question posed not this time by a Reddit historian, but actually a Reddit scientist, which is uh, very, very, uh, you know, a bit of a change of pace for us here, but let's get to it anyway. Obviously, we're talking about the history of Francia, the history of the nation that later on would become France. And and this one, I feel, you know, a nice, a nice uh, crossover science-history question to consider while we're talking about France here. Reddit user ThisIsDK asks, If electricity always follows the path of least resistance... Why doesn't lightning only strike in France?